about ready to get started here. Welcome uh, on this smoking hot Sunday. Uh, it feels a whole lot better in here than it does outside already. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer and then we'll get things started this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here together with one another and to worship you and celebrate you and, and learn from your word. Uh, Father, we just uh, pray for the Sunday school classes that are meeting right now, we pray for the service that, that follows, and we just uh, ask for your guidance, the guidance of your Holy Spirit, that we would uh, speak the right things and learn the right things and just uh, have the, the right fellowship and that it would all be pleasing to you. And we just, uh, just want to lift up your name, Father, and we just ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. Um, hey. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. That's the last time I'm going to get to say that to you uh, until September. Uh, this is the last uh, Sunday school class until so right off the top of my head. We'll get that to you as the summer goes on. And we will pick up with Revelation chapter 13 when, uh, when we start the, you know, the, the fall, uh, I guess you would call it semester. So, uh, but... For today, I want to finish uh, Revelation chapter 12. Now, last week, we looked at, at the first nine verses of Revelation chapter 12, and we talked about how this is one of the most pivotal, maybe the most pivotal chapter in the entire uh, book of Revelation. And, and we, the two biggest things that we noticed last week is, one, we looked at two great signs, uh, the sign of, of the, the woman clothed in the sun with the stars and, and, and the moon around her. And we also saw the sign of the great red dragon. Uh, and, and this woman was uh, about to give birth to a child who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. So in the midst of those two signs, we also identified three, uh, three people, three entities. Uh, you know, we said that, that really the, the child and the dragon are pretty easy. Uh, the, the Bible comes right out and tells us who the dragon is, that it's, it's Satan, okay? It's the devil. The child that, it, you know, it says to rule with a rod of iron, uh, we see that, that several times throughout the Bible, and we saw it earlier in Revelation as a reference to Christ. So, you know, we know that, that two of the people that we're dealing with are two of the, the, the individuals uh, you know, are Jesus and the devil. Now, the, the big tricky part, as we discussed last week, was defining who that other person was. Who is the woman? And we talked about the three different ways people see it. Some see it as the church, some see it individually as Mary, and some see it as, as the Jewish people uh, through who the Messiah was, was to come. Uh, and, and we kind of discussed those things a little bit, but uh, you know, the way personally that, that, that I view it is that it's the Jewish people. Yes, it was certainly individually Mary, but she was representative of the entire nation. The promise was to come, you know, the, of the Messiah was to come through the Jewish people. God had said you know, that, that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the whole world, and this is the way that blessing starts taking place, is through the coming of the Messiah uh, through the Jewish people. So, you know, that was kind of what we looked at last week. 
Now, I want to pick up on, on in verses 10 through 17 and close out uh, the, the chapter this week. And in verse 9 last week, the last thing that we saw, it says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, we went through the, you know, the discussion of when exactly that happens or happened. Uh, is it the past? Is it still future? Uh, and we lean toward this being a future event, not the uh, initial fall of Satan, but uh, another attempt by Satan to kind of challenge God, and, and, and now he's cast down. And, and we'll, we'll look a little bit more about, uh, about that here today. So that's kind of where we left off last week. So I want to read verses 10 through 17, and then we'll go back through and we'll break, break those verses down one verse at a time. So Satan's been cast down, and we'll pick up at verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God, uh, before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of, of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the, ser the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. All right. We read that and, and, and you know, you're probably thinking, wow, man, there's some far out stuff in there. We got rivers and the earth swallowing it and wings of eagles and what is going on here? So let's just take this one verse at a time. One, we start out with celebration in heaven. Heaven is rejoicing. Uh, if you look at verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, and we don't know who the loud voice is. It, we're, it's never identified who the loud voice is, and so all we could really do is speculate. It's ultimately not important who said this. Is it God himself? Is it an angel? Uh, we don't know. But, but John heard a loud voice proclaiming in heaven, uh, you know, these, these truths. But he says, now has come the salvation and power and the authority of, of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our, bro our brothers and sisters. He accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Uh, if you go down to verse 12, at the beginning of it, he says, therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. So there's happiness. Satan has lost this attempt to overtake the heavens from God, and he's been cast down to the earth. And not just cast down, but we're told he no longer will have access to the heavens. 
Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I just want to reiterate it. When you think to the, to the book of Job, remember the start of the book of Job, we see Satan coming to heaven with the rest of the sons of God and saying to, you know, basically to give an account to God of what he's been doing. And God asks him, yeah, what have you been doing? All right, and, and at one point, God points out to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And right away, what's Satan do? What's his nature? He starts to accuse. Oh, well, yeah, Job, he's nothing. If you took away all the advantages you give him, well, he, he'd curse you, God. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have anything. And so he starts making accusations. Now, that tells us some things about the nature of the way heaven works and the nature of, of Satan. Evidently, he comes regularly to the heavens to talk to God, to give an account before God, and to accuse us. He is the accuser of the brethren. You notice that you know, we read there earlier, it says he does this night and day. That The picture is Satan every day going to God, night and day, on and off throughout the entire day, Going to heaven saying, hey God, hey God, hey God, did you see Brian? See what he just did? You know, did you see Millard? Did you see D? He's picking on you guys for a little. Did you see him? You know, and that's what he does to us. He makes accusations against us. And you know... He's a liar. He, he, he's been a liar from the beginning. So I'm sure the accusations he makes are not always accurate. At the very least, uh, you know, exaggerated. However, he's probably right sometimes too. We do all sin, don't we? And so he can go to God and he say, you know, look at Brian. I saw him sin. Maybe nobody else saw it, but I saw it. God's like, yeah, I saw it too. And Jesus is our defense attorney. And he stands up and he's our advocate and he says, yeah, but I died for him. My blood was shed for him. My blood covered his sins. My favorite passage of Scripture, and it's funny, we were talking about this at Manday a little bit yesterday with a couple of people, and, and uh, my favorite passage of scripture is Romans chapter 8 the last uh, nine verses of Romans chapter 8 and I want to read that to you and I want you to see the picture that this paints of this scene because that's really the backdrop for this uh, you know all of that chapter in Romans 8 is talking about salvation and what God has done and and and, and you know for us and and he says, uh, what then shall we say in response to these things? All the things he's just got done talking about. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also among, uh, along with these things graciously give us all things? Who will bring, a char, uh, br who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, you know the answer to that. He doesn't say it here, but we know it. We know it from the Bible. You know who brings the charge? Satan does. 
Notice what he says, though. Who will bring this, this charge? It is God who justifies. That word justify means to declare righteous. It means a judge sitting there listening to a case and then giving the verdict. Boom. You're innocent of the charges. Not because you didn't do them in our case, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Penalty's been paid. It's Christ who, who, or it's God who declares righteous, who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Again, it's Satan, isn't it? He's the condemner. He's the accuser. No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, I don't know about you, but that probably deserves a pretty good amen right there. You know, when the accusations come, we have the perfect defense attorney, one who himself paid for the sins. You can't, I mean, you can't get any better than that. The Son of God, who stands there and intercedes and says, no, I paid the price. Yes, he's a sinner, but I paid for his sins. So he stands innocent before the court. I love this passage of Scripture. And then he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, notice this, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's our defense. And that's the picture that's being painted here. The accuser comes every day, day and night, on and off throughout the day, and he makes accusations against the saints, and Jesus stands up and says, no, I died for them. Now you can imagine heaven, the, the, the inhabitants of heaven would get tired of seeing him, wouldn't you think? And now he's cast down, he's made this power play for the heavens to take God's control away and he's been thrown down to the earth along with all of his demons and heaven throws a great big party Woohoo! he's done he can't come up here anymore so that's the scene that we see at the beginning now we're going to get back to that here a little bit later but that's how we see verse 10 open up the, de the declaration that salvation has come. Now, what's it mean that salvation has come? Christ has already died long before this. He's already resurrected long before this. People have been getting saved for thousands of years. What does it mean? Well, I want you to think of this. Most of the time when we think of salvation, we have a, a far too narrow view of salvation. We think of it as, as that moment where we accepted Christ, and we don't think of all the other things that, that take place as a part of what salvation is we think of it as as just kind of one part of it of justification of being declared righteous but you know we didn't just get saved to keep us from hell we got saved to give us heaven 
We got saved as a part of God's great plan. And, and his, you know, there's more to his plan of salvation than just keeping us out of hell. It's creating the sons and daughters of God, making us what he always intended to be, making the, you know, redoing the earth and making it again what he intended to be. All of those things fit into what salvation is. It's all a part of it. And so as we approach the time, you know, now Satan has been cast down. He can't go back to heaven anymore. The only thing he has left is to fight it out on earth. As we approach the time of the end, they, you know, in heaven they are, are, are celebrating salvation has come. That time has come. We are about at that, that, that ultimate moment where Christ will go back to the earth overthrow Satan completely, lock him away, and rule for a thousand years. We're almost there. It's come. It's, it's the time. We're, we're right on the cusp of it right now. These last events, you know, are, are heading toward the end. That's what he's saying here. Notice what goes along with that. It, 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 it come, the salvation has come, but so has the power and the kingdom of God. Again, there is the sense that God has, has you know, always been king. And so often, there, you know, it, it, the, the kingdom of God is such a greatly debated thing. Is it talking about God's rule of the universe at all the time, or is it talking about you know, that specific time where, where Christ rules in the millennial kingdom? And, and honestly, I think you have to look at, at the context of Scripture to know what it's talking about. Because, you know, God has always been king, uh, you know, but that is mostly, I would argue most of the time, not what the Bible is specifically talking about. Clearly, it is not here. This person who announces in heaven says, now the kingdom of God has come, the, the power and the kingdom. They're right on the verge. Now, it, it's not doubting that God has always been in charge. What have we seen all throughout Revelation? God is the sovereign one. He's always in charge. Satan can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. But there's also a specific kingdom coming. There's a specific time when Christ is going to come again and he's going to rule on the earth just like he promised. And that's the kingdom that most of the time the Bible is looking forward to. And so this person announcing this in heaven, whoever it is, an angel or God or whoever, says... Now has come the power and the kingdom. Satan's been cast down. Kind of the die is set for the last moments of this fight. We've got three and a, the rest of the three and a half you know, years that end the tribulation, and then we're there. We're there. Salvation has come, the, the ultimate end of salvation. The kingdom has come, that ultimate you know, messianic rule. The power that comes with that when, when Christ will re literally redo the way the earth is run. Oh, so many Old Testament passages, we don't have the time to go into them today, but think of the lion laying down with the lamb, the child playing by the cobra's den. All those are passages of the time when the kingdom comes, when Christ is the ruler, and everything is made like an Eden again. That's what it's looking toward. 
the salvation and the power and the kingdom are come. Notice the last thing he says, and the, pow- and the authority or the power of his Messiah. In case there was any doubt about what this kingdom is talking about, it's going to be you know, the authority of the Messiah. His power. He will reign. He will be sitting on a throne. It's just about time, he says. It's now come. The last events, the closing moments have now come. Why the celebration? Well, like we said, because the, the, of the fall uh, of, of Satan. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Heaven, it's time to celebrate. He can't come up here and do this anymore. We don't have to, you know, we, we don't have to see his face again. It's a good day in heaven. I, I want to go back to Romans 8 real quickly and I want to read something to you about as I said there's more to salvation than just us not going to hell God has so much involved in 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 his ultimate salvation I want to read to you Romans 8 verses 18 through 25 to just get give you an a kind of an idea this is you know, stuff that's leading up to what I, I, I read previously. This is Paul talking to the Roman church. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will re- re- be revealed in us. The present things we go through, the sufferings in this life, they're not even worth comparison to what we are going to be someday, what we're going to look like someday when God is done with us. When he makes us who he ultimately wants us to be, all the things we suffered in this life will fall away and be forgotten and won't matter. There's no comparison. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. All of the creation of God is, sitting, is kind of sitting there waiting for the day that God completes us. When God makes his children everything that they're supposed to be. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. See, God subjected the creation. We, We were to live here. You know, this is our home. But when man fell... An imperfect you know, people couldn't live in a perfect world, a perfect home. So God subjected the creation to our sin. Not, not you know, because the creation wanted it against its will. God, you know, the will of the one who subjected create the creation in hope. And hope of one, the one day him making us again who we are supposed to be. And making the creation again what it is supposed to be. It's the picture of creation longing to get back to what it was created to be in the first place. And lost because of our sin. 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we've been saved, we've got the Holy Spirit, but we're not done, we're not completed yet. God's not done making us who we are to be yet. Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of, uh, to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. See, there's a whole lot more to salvation than just us getting saved. Just us not having to go to hell. And part of our hope in salvation is to be eagerly awaiting that time when one day we will be what the Bible calls glorified. We go through that moment of justification when God says, I declare you righteous. Then we go through sanctification, a lifetime of changing and growing and becoming more like Christ. But we never quite get there, do we? The sins never quite stop in this life. The struggles never quite stop. But one day, when we are in heaven with the Lord, when Christ comes back again and reunites uh, you know, our new bodies with our spirits, one day when we are everything that we are supposed to be, that's what the Bible calls glorification. We are now made ready for heaven. Changed in all the, the, you know, the, the sores and the pains done away. You'll never mind the 95 degree heat again. All that done away. And now you'll be everything that God wants you to be. And he says we long for that, we groan for that, and all of creation groans for that because when that happens, creation can be made new again. As we get to the end of the book of Revelation next year, we're going to see that that's going to be one of the statements that, that God makes. He will make all things new again. So there's way more to salvation than just not going to hell. And the beautiful thing is, the people in heaven see that that time is just about there. The doors kind of started to open and they can see the view. And they're celebrating in heaven. Verse 11, it talks about how these people overcame Satan. What is the thing that overcomes his opposition? Well, what did we just talk about? It says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. First of all, the blood of the Lamb, the price that was paid to accomplish this task. Jesus paid the price in his blood. The ultimate sacrifice, the atoning blood of Christ. Look, there's an awful lot of people who call themselves Christians, who use that name, who can't stand the thought of the atonement. 
well, that just makes God violent that he would kill his own son. Anybody you ever hear say that, one, they are not a Christian. Look, I'll be as bold right now as I can be. They are liars. Do not believe anything they have to say. They are false teachers. You have nothing, nothing without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Bible could not be any clearer. So do not listen to any of the nonsense that those people throw out. Throw it out instead. It's worthless. We have overcome because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is what won the victory. God accepted that. He accepted that sacrifice when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's what the resurrection proves, that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It was sufficient. God brought him from the grave. Said, you are mine. I accept what you've done. You have nothing without the atonement. The next thing it says is by the word of their testimony. Well, what is the testimony of believers? That we have put our faith, our trust in the person of Jesus Christ and in his shed blood and his resurrection? That's our testimony. Not anything that we have done, but what he has done for us, and we've put our trust in that. We've said, God, I, I believe that so much, I'm going to trust it, and I'm going to rest in that. I am going to trust in that for my eternal salvation. Nothing I can do, nothing anyone else can do, only your shed blood and your resurrection. That's it. That's our testimony. Notice then the next thing. What happens to how we live our lives the moment we accept the triumph of Jesus Christ? It says these people did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The ultimate statement of faith in Christ. The ultimate statement of trust. I trust you so much, God, even if I have to give my life in this life, I will give it. Because all of my faith all of my trust is in you. Look at how many martyrs we've seen in the book of Revelation just to this point. Thousands and thousands of them. Remember the holy back a few chapters ago? The souls underneath the altar that had been martyred and crying out to God, God, when will you bring justice? Look at what God is now saying to them. You've overcome. The time for his defeat, Satan's defeat, is now here. We've already cast him out of heaven. What do you think those souls under the altar are thinking right now as they see Satan cast down from the heavens to the earth? I bet they're rejoicing just like everybody else. The time has come. The enemy is, is defeated from heaven and will be defeated on earth. The time for salvation has come. A lot of people have trusted Christ so much that they didn't love their lives so much that they wouldn't give them up. The ultimate testimony of what their faith is. Look in verse 12. 
and we see the celebration in heaven. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Everyone in the heavens, everyone who lives here, rejoice. Throw a celebration. Satan's out of here. We don't have to see him anymore. We don't have to hear his accusations anymore. Heaven celebrates. There's also a a continuing reality here. And you notice the next thing. It doesn't take long for this kind of person, this announcer, whoever he is in heaven, to announce that there's still a reality. There's still work to be done. There's still things that are going to happen. Just look at the next thing he says. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's been cast out of heaven. He's cast down to the earth. And, you know, heaven is celebrating. And this announcer says, go ahead and celebrate. It's great. But there's also a realization of, of what's about to happen on the earth. And, and that, it doesn't take long for that to kind of come home. And he says, but woe to the earth. Woe to the sea. Woe to everything down there. Because now he's cast down to you. He can't come up here anymore. He's full time down there now. Look at the next thing it says about him. It says he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He's angry. He's he's furious. He's filled with it. Consumed by fury at this point. As if he wasn't mad enough already, he's even madder. He's consumed by it because he knows he has a short time. He knows how much. Three and a half years, we're told a couple times here. He's on a time schedule. Now, you would kind of think, like, you know, from just a human perspective, wouldn't he just give up? But now, he's far too evil for that. He's far too much of a liar. He began with lies. He will end with lies. I'm sure that even in this, he's convinced himself he can win. He can figure out a way to do this. He made a play for the heavens and he lost. Now he can figure out how to do this. And so he's in a fury, and he knows he has a short time. So what's he do? Look at verses 13 through 17. Let me just start by reading verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So the first thing he does when he gets cast to the earth and he realizes what has happened to him, he goes after the woman. He goes after the Jewish people. He says, I'm going to get them. Now, you know, this brings about a a question of why does he do this? Why does he pursue them? Is it just the fury? Is he just so mad and the Messiah came through the Jewish people and so I'm going to destroy them? I'm just going to get back at them? Or does he think that in some way eliminating them can somehow help his situation? 
Let me read a couple of things to you. Again, I'm going to read from the New American Commentary uh, by Paige Patterson. He had, a, I think, a good summation of this. He said, in the closing verses of this chapter, an explanation is given both for the particular fury of Satan toward the Jews and also for his uh, general fury toward all who follow Christ. In verse 11, when the dragon sees that he has been hurled to the earth and cannot have access or victory over the male child who has been born, he instead pursues the woman who gave birth. Few seem to reflect on the strange circumstances existing in the contemporary world and continuing, in fact, for millennia. Jews today make up an infinitesimal portion of the world's population. The national and geographical entity called Israel is a small piece of real estate where to date few natural resources have been discovered. Water supply is always a problem, and unlike many of her neighbors, she does not appear to have extensive oil deposits or other wealth-bearing commodities. Doubtless, the Dead Sea contains invaluable mineral deposits, but these have been notoriously difficult to extract, and other, and other than the rather large potash products, not, uh, not that many assets are available to Israel in the land." Nevertheless, she is the object of almost worldwide opposition. Indeed, even, even the United States and certain other European countries like Great Britain, who have attempted to be allies with Israel, have discovered that the general anti-Semitic hatred of Israel extends quickly to other nations who befriend her. The interesting question to be raised from all, all this is why a piece of relatively unprofitable real estate and a, small, and a small population of ethnic Jews, even if the worldwide Jewish population is counted, would generate such antagonism toward the Jewish people. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but you know, I thought it was worth reiterating again because that's what we see here. There is no conceivable explanation. Even if one posits atrocities rarely committed by Jews, and sometimes the Jewish people do do wrong things. This is something we need to understand sometimes. They don't always do what's right. And their leadership is not a godly leadership. They're, they're, you know, Israel is largely an agnostic nation. You know, they have a very high percentage of atheists in Israel. So they don't always do what's right. And so, you know, as he said, even when they rarely, you know, do some kind of a, a atrocity, that's not enough to explain the hatred that happens around the world. So it's impossible to provide a rational explanation for the almost universal practice of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, this chapter makes that understanding crystal clear. Satan, the ruler of this age, has put in the hearts of people to hate the Jews and therefore to pursue them. His ancient uh, antipathy for God and for God's purposes in redemption flowers into a hatred for every person or entity chosen of God for a role in that plan. Properly identifying the woman in chapter 12 as Israel is the hermeneutical move that renders the actions of Satan understandable in this chapter, in the apocalypse, in the Bible, in all of history, and in the contemporary malaise. 
God chose Israel as the object of his love and the vehicle of his salvation. Consequently, Satan, unable to launch a successful assault on God, chose Israel as the object of his wrath. I thought that's a pretty good summation of things. As I mentioned last week, uh, some, some people even believe, particularly in, in the Messianic Jewish community, uh, that because of what is said in, in, in Matthew chapter 23, and let me read verses 37 through 39 of Matthew 23, this is Jesus speaking about the, the Jewish people, him, him weeping over the Jewish people and over Israel, over Jerusalem. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left, left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, some Christians believe that, that you know, Satan tries to kill all the Jews because if he can eliminate every Jew and there's no Jew to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, no Jew to call for Christ to come back, then Satan feels that he can somehow win. And I have no idea, I have no doubt the father of lies may well lie to himself that very thing. Now, is there any chance that that's actually going to defeat Christ? No, of course not. Of course not. Jesus knows exactly when. God knows exactly when this is going to happen. There will be a day where the people who rejected him will call for him to come back again. There will be that day. But in Satan's mind, and his warped mind, the father of lies, I'm sure he's told himself, hey, I can win if I can just destroy them all. If I can just get rid of them all, there'll be no reason for him to ever come back again. I can't have the heavens, but maybe I can have the earth. Can't you just... Hear the lies. See, when you start to think through the prism of God's Word, a lot of what happens in the world starts to make some sense, doesn't it? In its warped and twisted way. So I'm sure Satan is lying to himself thinking, hey, I can get this done. But we see in verse 14... A fascinating verse that nobody really understands. Now, I mean nobody. <laughs> you know. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. All right, what's it mean that she was given two wings of a great eagle? There have been so many ideas of what this means, it's, it's almost not worth even going over. Nobody knows. Uh, again, <laughs> I, was, I was reading Dr. Patterson's commentary, and he just comes right out and says, there, there, nobody knows the answer to this, which is a refreshing thing to hear sometimes from a scholar. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. There, we don't know. 
All we know for sure is it means God somehow rescues the Jewish people. He gets them to this place of refuge. People have even said, well, that's, that's the U.S. Air Force. Extraordinarily unlikely. That's reading so much into it. That's horrible Bible study. There's nothing in this context that would even lean toward that a little bit. The, if you're going to take it at its most literal, it, you know, they're going to get wings and they'll fly. Do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. I doubt if every Jew will all of a sudden break out with a pair of wings and fly to, to this place of refuge. More than likely, the idea of the wings is an idea of safety. When you picture an eagle in flight, you picture something that can soar above all the difficulties and the problems and get away from it. And that's the idea. That's what God is trying to say. God will provide a way to protect them from Satan and get them to this refuge place where he wants them. And it says he can keep them from the serpent's reach. God has a spot that he can take them and keep them from the reach of Satan, and he'll get them there somehow. The reality is it's probably going to be a whole bunch of different ways. Remember back to the Olivet Discourse and what Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Get out. So it'll probably happen in a whole bunch of different ways, but people will get there, and God will provide the way for people to get there, just like an eagle with his wings. God will provide the escape. And he has a place where, for whatever reason, the serpent can't get to them at this place, out of the serpent's reach. Now, of course, great deal of speculation about the place, and we talked about this last week. Verse, verse 6 mentioned this. Uh, you know, it, it says in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now we see a reference to that same place in time and times and half a time, which again is probably a reference to you know, the same time period, three and a half years. We mentioned this last week, but the Bible kind of refers to three and a half years in four different ways. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, or time and times and half a time. But they all basically mean the same thing, three and a half years. So where is this place? Well, we talked about that a little bit last week. We looked at that uh, passage in Micah where it says God, God will gather his sheep together at Basra. And what Basra means essentially meant the sheepfold. God has a place that he sees as his sheepfold where he brings his sheep together. Now, two places had the actual title, uh, you know, actual name Basra at one point or another in, in, in Bible history. One is this, this little town, I think it's called Bucera, if I remember it correctly, correctly and, and pronouncing it correctly. And the other one is, is a place called Petra. So much speculation has been, well, it's Petra. And, and I think that's probably pretty good, but the reality is none of us know. We might think we do because that's what we've been taught, and we're like, nope, that's true. But the reality is no text says it's specifically Petra, none. I think that's most likely. That certainly seems to fit. 
But yeah, we also have to be you know, humble with God's word. And there's no specific text that says, this is the place God's going to bring them all together. It's right here on the map. We don't know that. Uh, if, if it is Basra, if it is the sheepfold, then like I said, there's two possibilities. But we don't even really know that for sure. That could be a reference to something else. But I think it's more likely that you know, Petra fits, let's put it that way. And a lot of Christians for, for many, many years have seen that Petra seems to fit. But you know, God has a way of surprising us when we think we have a pretty good handle on things. So I don't know. Most likely Petra, but we may, you know, hey, if, if we're in heaven watching someday, we may, we might be surprised. Oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, that's God's prerogative. He can do that. All we are to do is to be as thorough and as humble as we can be with his word. So I can't honestly give you a specific answer. But I do lean that way. That's what I think is the most likely place. A place where the Jewish people can hide for three and a half years that somehow God has def- you know, defends and builds a defense in some way that, that Satan cannot get them during that time. They will be out of his reach. And, and how that is, I don't know. I, I don't. That's, you know, that's more than what the text can, can, can really say to us. We don't get the details. We're just told this is what will happen. Now, obviously, Satan tries to stop this. We look at verse 15. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. All right, there's several ways that people have looked at this. One, this is literally a flood or a river of water that Satan somehow causes a flood or a, a river to flow you know, where they are trying to flee and drown them out. Most of you guys have probably heard at one time or another of the flash floods that hit the desert areas, especially what are called wadis or dry riverbeds which would be the way to travel into a place like this. And they always warn, like if you're out hiking in places like that, they have warnings posted everywhere. If it starts to rain, you get out of here. You get out of the, the wadi. Because floods can come, I mean, water runs off. It, it, there's nowhere else for it to go. So all that water gathers into that, that little wadi and just whoo, rushes through there. And many people have been killed through the years in those things. So some scholars believe that Satan will literally send a flood, cause a storm in some way to flow through there and try to wipe them out. Others say that a flood is often used in the Bible as a uh, a metaphoric way of referring to an invasion, an army, and that God will, you know, that that Satan will send a, a, a people, an army, after Israel to try to kill them, but God will protect them. The reality is, again, we have to just be honest and say we don't know. I I, I don't know. I wish I could give you an answer, but I don't know. And I'll be honest, I don't even lean one way or another on this one. I have no idea. I'm 50-50 right down the middle. Either one works perfectly fine for me. Either one is a perfectly acceptable biblical answer. So let's not be arrogant and try to say we understand something we don't. It's just, you know, 
God knows. More than likely, it's probably one of those two, either a literal flood or a literal invasion. I don't know, but God's going to protect them. And it, it appears he protects them in a miraculous way. Satan sends this, but look at what 16 says. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Okay, let's look at this in both, you know, both possibilities. If this is a literal flood of water, Satan and somehow causes this flood. And you notice that, that in both cases, it's the opening of the mouth and spewing out. The earth opened its mouth, Satan opens its mouth. It's, it's, again, it's the idea of kind of Satan being in control of this and causing it, but God also causing the, 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 the answer for it, the remedy. You know, Satan opens his mouth and he causes this flood in some way. God opens up the earth, opens up the earth's mouth, and the flood runs somehow down into the earth. If it's an invasion, Satan causes the invasion, God calls, causes the earth to open up and swallow the invaders. Something like an earthquake or something like that causes a, a, the earth to open up and literally swallows them. We don't know which one. Again, we, we just have to, I told you guys at the beginning of this, there's going to be an awful lot of times if we're going to be humble with God's word, we just have to say, I don't know. Well, we're in those times here. I don't know. But this much I do understand. Satan will make an attempt to destroy the Jewish people either by water, by a flood, or by people, by an invasion. And God will defeat that attempt and protect them. Somehow he will cause the earth to swallow up Satan's attempt, whether it is a flood or whether it is invaders. God will cause it to happen, and he will protect them in their flight to safety. All right, Satan was already mad. And we've seen the aftermath of his anger. He's, well, you think he's going to be any happier now? Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged. You know, the first time, it, you know, it, it, it tells us that he was filled with fury. If it's even possible, now it kind of goes to a, to a higher level. He is enraged. He is filled, you know, consumed, kind of filled up or puffed up with his rage. Kind of like the blowing up of kind of a balloon, and it gets bigger and bigger with the air that's in it. It's, he's, he's consumed and, and, and blown up by his rage. He's enraged at the woman. Well, he can't get her. He couldn't get the child. And he made another attempt. to. Get, he, he tried to get him at birth and all through his life. Couldn't get him. Then he goes to the heavens and he tries to get him. Let me see if I can take the heavens away. Can't get him there. Then he goes and he tries to get the woman. And he's been trying to get her for all these years. Can't get her. So now what's he do? 
The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Well, who's that? Well, it's probably, it's talking about one people here. It's talking about the people of God. Probably both Jew and Gentile. Any Jew that is not there in Israel and escaping up into the mountains, and all the Gentiles who've gotten saved during the tribulation. All of God's children. Are we in some way offspring from this woman? Yes, we are. The Bible tells us that, that in Abraham all the people of the world would be blessed. That ultimately in what God was doing through Abraham, through his descendants, through the Jewish people, we would all be blessed. What's Paul say in Romans? We are grafted into their olive tree. So I believe Satan is going to go after the Jews who are not in Israel, but he's also going to go after Christians. He wants to destroy everything that has come from God and come from that woman. He wants to destroy them all. And the second half of the tribulation will be his attempt to destroy anything that, that even has a resemblance to God. He wants to destroy anything that has the name of God on it. He's enraged. Notice the last thing it says in verse 17. Who these people are. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That's who they're defined as. Not just Jew, not just Gentile. Anyone who has the testimony of Jesus Christ and keeps the commands of God. All true believers, Satan is going to try to turn his rage against. When we get into the fall, we're going to see some horrific things. As if we haven't seen them already. But we're going to see some terrible things. The Bible will talk about the rising up of the Antichrist government, the mark of the beast, you know, things that we've heard about for years and years and years. That's what's coming in the fall. Those are the things that we will look at starting actually with chapter 13 and moving on through the, the rest of the book. That's what's coming. And all of that, and see, here's why 12 is so important. How you determine who that woman is determines how you see everything else that happens in the rest of this book. If the woman represents Israel, the Jewish people, then all kind of the building blocks for the rest of the book start to kind of fall in place, don't they? You kind of see why Satan does the things he does, why the Antichrist does the things he does. He is enraged. He wants to destroy the Jewish people. He wants to destroy all of God's people. What in our present day we would call the church. 
But as we've seen, the church, you know, we believe the church has been taken before any of this takes place. But that doesn't mean there's not still a people of God. In fact, some scholars even who believe, who, pre-tribulational scholars who believe the church is taken, they even use the term church then again for this group. Now, I think that gets a little confusing at times, but, but some even start to call this group the church because essentially it will be the people of God. You know, they're all our brothers and sisters of Christ. They have every bit of much of a claim, of, you know, of being the people of God as we do. So Satan is going to make an attempt to destroy everything that is God's. He wants to wipe the name of God out. He wants to replace himself in God's position. He lost the attempt at the heavens. Now he's going to try to make it all happen on the earth. And that's why the announcer in heaven goes, woe to the earth. Woe to the sea. Because he knows he only has a short time and he is filled with fury. All right, I want to thank you guys. Thank you for your attendance and your attention and your questions. Um, it's been a long year. Uh, this is, you know, this is always quite an undertaking studying Revelation. Um, but a lot of you guys have been with me pretty much every week for, for you know, this entire church year. Uh, so I appreciate your attendance. You, you are a great. Uh, Great audience, uh, great, great group of students. So uh, we'll start up again come September. So your, your assignment, I always like to give you an assignment. Usually it's just a one-week assignment. Now you've got like a three-month one, four-month, yeah, whatever. Your assignment now is I want you to read the rest of the book, chapters 13 through 22. Take the time this summer to read the rest of Revelation. In fact, it wouldn't even really hurt you to go back and start at the beginning and read it all. As I told you at the beginning of the class, I would highly make a recommendation that you go out and invest in at least one, but probably two or three really good commentaries. Specific commentaries of just Revelation. Go out and make an investment in your growth. Make an investment in your Christian life. Study God's Word deeply. And you'll get so much more out of it. Because that's my ultimate goal, is not just to stand here and spew out information at you. But my ultimate goal is to make you scholars yourself. That's what I want. I know that's what Glenn wants. It's what the elders want. We want a church of people who are committed to, to being students of God's word themselves because you will grow when that happens. So that's, that's your, your assignment for the summer. Dig in. Come back in September, and it'll be even better. We'll have a great time in September. The more you do that, the better the class will be. All right? Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your character and who you are and what you've done. I thank you for Jesus Christ who paid that ultimate price and died for our sins. And I thank you for your acceptance of his sacrifice and bringing him from the dead. 
I thank you for your spirit, the Holy Ghost who indwells each of your people, all of, your, your, of the believers in Jesus Christ, who guides us and teaches us and rebukes us and calls us to you. I'm thankful for everything that you are, Father. And at, at the end of this first year of this study of Revelation, that's the thoughts I'm left with, is thankfulness to you. And for, for all that you not only have done, but all that you will continue to do and all that you will complete one day uh, in, in the future, whenever that case, whenever that day may be. And so, Father, I, I'm thankful. I just praise you, and I pray that we would continue to praise you now in the service to follow. And I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.